0: A very good day. You're watching CNN. I'm Richard Quest in New York, sitting in today for Julia. I begin with the latest from Ukraine. Only hours after the country said it would try again to get civilians out of a steel plant in Mariupol, an official there says Russian forces blocked off a potential escape route near the Azovstal complex. An operation to evacuate the complex had been scheduled for today. Hundreds of people are thought to be sheltering inside the plant, which has now become symbolic of Ukraine's resistance in the eastern part of the country. There have been heavy strikes and counterstrikes in Donetsk region. These are images of a fuel depot that was set alight in an area controlled by Russian-backed forces. Elsewhere, a Ukrainian rail hub and supply line was hit, and the Ukrainian military says shelling is intense along the entire line of contact in the Donetsk and Luhansk region. U.S. officials are acknowledging Russian forces are making progress. They describe it as slow and uneven. President Zelensky is accusing the Russians of carrying out five missile strikes on the capital, Kiev, while the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres was wrapping up his visit to the city. Several people were injured when an apartment building was struck, setting it on fire. President Zelensky says the attack reveals what Russian intentions truly are.
1: Today, immediately after the end of our talks in Kyiv, Russian missiles flew into the city. Five missiles. This says a lot about Russia's true attitude to global institutions about the Russian leadership's efforts to humiliate the UN and everything that the organization represents and therefore requires an appropriate, powerful
0: response. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has accepted an invitation to attend the G20 summit in November, according to the host of the summit, Indonesian leader Yoko Wikodo. He says he's also invited Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. This is what the Pentagon press secretary said when asked if Mr. Putin should be welcomed at the G20.
2: No, he absolutely shouldn't be. I mean, he has isolated Russia uh, by his own actions and he should continue to be isolated by the international community. Uh, Look, I can't speak for President Biden or what the schedule might uh, might offer for for the president, for United States attendance. uh, But it's inappropriate, I think, for the entire international community uh, to keep treating Russia uh, as if things are normal because it's not.
0: Russian forces are making advances in southern Ukraine. For many civilians near the front lines, the evacuation is as dangerous as sheltering in place. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports. If Moscow had any surprises left
3: in this war, it is along here. The other side of the river has been Russia's for weeks, but here, the western side, is caught in the fast-changing landscape of this week's push. That's the prize. Over there, the Dnieper River, up past which, on the left side bank here, the Russians are trying to push, wanting control of both sides of that vital part of Ukraine. Here in Novovoronskovo, we are told there are a handful of Russian tanks just over a kilometre away on its outskirts, pushing, probing, but ultimately kept at bay by Ukrainian forces that still hold the town. Brazilians here, embodied in Ludmila, under the threat of rocket fire, planting onions. I'm here until victory, she said.
4: Mama, сейчас и я.
3: Дети выехали. Our children have gone. It's just her and her mother. Сколько лет ваш мама?
1: 80.
3: Okay, an uh, eight-year-old mother and her are staying here.
1: Mama said she wouldn't go
2: anywhere, and I wouldn't leave her.
3: Her mother says she's not going anywhere and she's not going to leave her alone. All her windows are blown out, she says. Ukrainian forces who don't want their positions filmed are dotted around the town. As to other signs of innocent lives lost here. Rockets peeking out from under the water. And this boat in which 14 civilians tried to flee Russian occupation on April the 7th, four of them died when Moscow's troops opened fire when it was 70 metres out. Yet still, the desperate keep fleeing. This morning, these women left behind their men to defend their homes near Novovorontsovka. We ran, ran early in the morning, said Luda. They didn't let us out. We're shields for them. They don't let us out, and by foot and by bicycle we go. In the fields we ran. Our soldiers were two kilometres away, Nadezhda adds, and we ran to them.
4: What they
3: need, the Russians take, she said. Take cars. They draw zeds on everything. As their new unwanted guests demanded milk and food at gunpoint, they had a glimpse of their warped mindset. They say they've come to liberate us, Luda said. These aggressors, that's what they told us. They say America is fighting here, but using the hands of Ukrainians to do it, that's what they say. Another claim to be fueled by the violence of the long war with separatists in the East. In general, the Donetsk militants say, she said, you have been bombing us for eight years. Now we bomb you. Across the fields, loathing and artillery swallow whole, once happy worlds.
0: Joining me now is Nick Payton-Walsh, who is with us now. Um, Nick, the, the situation that we are seeing the deteriorating situation it's difficult to judge isn't it the, the at one point where, where the, U, the u.s says that russia is making small b- dem- uh, advances but they are making advances and on the other side we're hearing that the ukrainians are also holding very strong lines how do you judge the position at the moment
3: Yeah, I think it's fair to say in overall that Russia is making some small gains here, and that may be something which increases over time. Certainly here in the southern areas, these vast rural expanses with villages scattered between them, it's very hard to really give you a sense of who the ultimate uh, winner is at this point. While Russia clearly takes some village on one day, moves forward in one area, Ukraine uh, moves in to their west in certain areas to the south of where I am and has victories there. It is back and forth constantly but the important thing to remember here is this is the second time russia has tried to bring its forces to bear and on mass push through ukraine's countryside here in the south but also in the east as well and it is slow going so your question is how much energy how much sort of resource do they have left to pour into this until that begins to drain on the russian side too Richard?
0: Uh, one thing to just get your, your take on, if we may, with, with your uh, wider foreign policy experience, the G20, President Putin is now saying he will attend the G20 in Indonesia in November. That's a, I mean, I guess that's going to absolutely put the cat amongst the pigeons in terms of nobody else will want to be seen with him. It's very difficult to see how that will proceed.
3: Yeah, it is tough to imagine how the G20, the world's you know richest nations, would all comfortably stand around a man. But it will also, I think, possibly reflect on how sanctions across the world are certainly united when it comes to Western nations, but not a universal thing uh, around the entire globe. And so it will be a fundamental question, I think, will end up being whether or not Western leaders decide to not go. I think that would damage the G20 as a premise, whether they decide to go and then and have images on stage where they stand metres apart from the Kremlin head. But November, Richard, is a long way away. And I think, you know, we did not imagine last November that we could possibly be standing here talking about the largest land war in Europe since 1945. Certainly, I'm sure there were many in Ukraine who would desperately hope the war will have stopped taking so many lives by then. It's doubtful if Russia, frankly, have the juice to keep going that long in the way that they're doing right now. But still, this certainly, I think, raises the issue of is the Western sh- uh, shunning of Russia in all ways uh, in the economy and the political sphere of the world emulated by the other rich nations of this world and quite where we would be geopolitically in this, frankly, new global landscape right. since Russia had this decision to unprovokedly
0: invade Ukraine at the end of the year. Richard. Nick Payton Walsh, very grateful. Thank you, sir. Staying with what's happening in Russia, the Russian central bank has cut its benchmark interest rate by a full three percentage points to 14 percent today. And this is as Western sanctions against Moscow intensify. And there are prospects of more because Russia is bracing for what could be a total EU ban on oil initially and maybe gas later. Oil's higher. Where you can see the numbers on the screen. Germany apparently is ready to support a Western embargo against Russian oil if it's phased in gradually to cushion the economic shock. And that, of course, would develop one with natural gas as well. New numbers showing the Ukraine wars impacting Eurozone growth. GDP expanded just two tenths of a percentage point in Q1. Eurozone inflation now is a record of seven and a half percent. And the war impacting corporate results ExxonMobil taking a three and a half billion dollar charge for exiting Russia. Its shares are under pressure in the pre-market down one percent. And Amazon and Apple, too. Now, this is a point we'll be talking about uh, throughout the morning. Amazon is losing nearly four billion dollars in the first quarter. So it's so it's worse, forgive me, sales growth in more than a decade. Apple is warning China's lockdown will hurt sales. To the latest Claire Sebastian on this. There's much there we need to chew over. So let's do the financial bits first. Amazon and Apple. Um, Amazon's numbers. Why? What was the underlying uh, direction for, for Amazon to lose this?
5: Yeah, Richard. So they are on the one hand chalking it up to an investment in electric car company Rivian. They say that they lost $7.6 due to the drop, the precipitous drop in that stock price since its IPO in November. But there's more to it than that. This is about big tech, including Amazon, which has benefited so greatly from the pandemic and the lockdowns, really sort of coming off those dizzy heights and showing that it's not immune to the same kind of supply chain and inflationary pressures that the rest of the economy uh, is looking at as well. I thought what was really interesting about this is that they are saying that there are costs in there that they can control and costs in there that they can't. So the costs they can't are things like shipping costs, Inflation, fuel, uh, wage, sort of you know, labor shortages, things like that. But the ones they can control are, are, are the impacts of the, the the immense growth they saw during the pandemic. They doubled their fulfillment network that uh, they'd spent 25 years building. They doubled it in 24 months. They doubled their workforce uh, from the first quarter of 2020 to All to right. this quarter. An extraordinary amount of growth. And they now say that they're coming off that, and they have some excess capacity in their system, and that is costing them money because of lower productivity. So they are having to manage that going
0: forward richard let's talk on this uh, oil and gas germany's ready to support a western embargo um to a large extent that we're talking here about oil not gas because they, they they need gas and will do until the end of the year but it's interesting that they're basically saying they now only get 12 percent of oil from uh, from russia
5: yeah, I think this is part of the story, Richard, that we haven't actually talked enough about. The countries, you know, while this war has been going on, have actually already started the work that they need to do in reducing their dependency uh, on, on Russia. That doesn't mean that they are ready for the taps to be switched off, but they say, uh, Well, certainly Thierry Breton, the EU commissioner, said uh, to, uh, to, to this show yesterday that he he is trying right now to, to put the work in for the EU that will mean that they can cope if the taps are switched off. But all eyes, of course, are on Germany when it comes to whether or not Mm -hmm. the EU will move to an oil embargo. They are the biggest importer of Russian oil and gas in Europe, the biggest economy. If they say they're ready to do this, I think that signals momentum.
0: Claire Sebastian in uh, London. Claire, thank you. China now. Vowing to boost stimulus as COVID growth obviously hits, or COVID lockdown hits in growth, Beijing may be winding down its months-long crackdown on tech. The Asian markets rallied with the Hong Kong Hang Seng up four percent. Selina Wangs in Kunming uh, for us. Uh, what's the indication, Selina, that they may be about to ease off the pressure on the tech companies?
4: Well,
1: earlier today, Richard, we had this Politburo statement saying that they want to promote healthy growth of the Internet sector and they want to boost this technology sector, which is a clear indication for many outside observers that regulators are now ready to ease up on that sweeping regulatory crackdown that started back in 2020. And what this is also clear, the statement from the Politburo about potentially easing these tech restrictions as well as boosting the economy is that China's leaders are increasingly concerned about the grim economic outlook. Analysts are calling these COVID lockdowns across China quote, making China's economy get closer to breaking point. Right now, there are 27, at least 27 cities across China that are under some sort of lockdown. That is impacting around 180 million people. That's more than half the U.S. population. And these comments from earlier today from the Politburo, Richard, come after just earlier this week, Xi Jinping said that the country needs to go on an all-out spending spree on infrastructure to spend more on construction projects, on large-scale transportation projects and in technology to try and boost the economy and boost consumer demand. And it's extremely critical that China try and turn the economy around this year. This is ahead of the very important Communist Party Congress this fall, in which Xi Jinping is widely expected to secure a historic third term as party chief.
0: All right. Uh, Selena, getting in and out of China at the moment, many business travelers just can't be bothered. It's far too difficult, even if you could get permission.
1: Exactly, Richard. I mean, even before these latest outbreaks, China was one of the hardest placers to enter in the world. Foreign visas are extremely limited, and it's even much harder than that for American journalists to get into China because of U.S.-China tensions. So, Finally, after I got approval, the big hurdle after that was just getting a flight into the country. The only flight our team could find for me from Tokyo was to Kunming, China, which is 1,600 miles away from Beijing, where I'm intended to be based. So this is the story of how I entered China during this zero COVID policy and increasing lockdowns. China is like entering a fortress. The country has been virtually sealed off since the start of the pandemic, guarded by strict border controls and the world's harshest quarantine. My journey to get in started with three PCR tests in Tokyo. Seven days out from my flight, just got my first COVID test. Back at home, I track my daily temperature and pack a suitcase full of snacks to prepare for 21 days in quarantine. Within 48 hours of boarding, China requires PCR tests at two different government-approved clinics. This is possibly the most paperwork I've ever needed to board an airplane. I say goodbye to Tokyo, my home, for the past one and a half years. Checking in at the airport, relatively smooth. Still checking my documents. I finally have my boarding pass. I'm at the gate. I'm going to China. Most people on my flight are Chinese citizens. Foreigners can only enter under very limited conditions. It's even harder for American journalists because of U.S.-China tensions. All the flight attendants in full protective gear. Getting ready for takeoff. Here we go. Flights into China, especially Beijing, are extremely limited. Even though I'll be based in the capital, first I'm flying to Yunnan province. After landing, I get another COVID test. A bus eventually takes us to the quarantine location. No one can choose where they'll be locked in for the next 21 days. (laughs) Hours later, we arrive. I count myself lucky. It's a hot spring resort converted into a quarantine site. It's my first time here, but I'll have to enjoy the view from the window. I can't step out onto the balcony or open my door, except for health checkups and food pickup. Two temperature checks a day, regular COVID tests, sometimes even twice a day. Food delivery isn't allowed, but breakfast, lunch, and dinner are part of the quarantine fees. These restrictions are all part of China's zero-COVID policy. Across China, tens of millions are sealed inside their homes. Since mid-December, China's average new daily case count has surged from double digits to more than 20,000, Any positive case and close contact has to go to government quarantine. Entire metropolises brought to a standstill. Most of Shanghai's 25 million residents have been locked in for weeks. Many struggling to get enough food and medical care. In year three of the pandemic, most of the world is learning to live with COVID. But in China, no case is tolerated, no matter the emotional and economic cost. I'm currently on day seven of 21 days of quarantine, but even after these 21 days are up, it's not clear whether or not I can fly into Beijing. As Beijing tightens controls around the city, even though COVID cases are currently still low, if the situation worsens and it goes into a full lockdown, flights into Beijing will probably be canceled. But right now, I still count myself lucky, even though I can't choose what I eat, at least I get three meals a day, which is better than what a lot I've been dealing with in Shanghai, where they're still struggling to procure enough daily essentials and food. Now, these 21 days in quarantine, the countless COVID tests, hoops to go through, Richard, it is no surprise that so many are just avoiding leaving the country or going in.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you've you've explained something. I was wondering why you were in Kunming. And I, I hadn't. I, I kept looking at notes thinking, have I missed that we've opened a bureau into Kunming? Now it all becomes clear. You're on day seven of 21 days. Well, I wish you well uh, in your, in your endeavours there. We'll follow and we'll keep a track. Well, not as much as you'll keep track. But anyway, we will keep track uh, of how you're doing. Selena, uh, have a good weekend as best you can. Oh, oh and one other thing. Does that spa bath, in that hotel. Does that actually work? Or has they switched it off?
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much for that, by the way. And let's see after 21 days, if you still see me here in Quidmean. The bath, I turned it on a few times and the water coming out is brown and muddy. So I'm just going to avoid using it uh, (laughs) at all costs.
0: Well, that's disappointing. Uh, Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Good to see you. well as we continue tonight. More on the conflict in Ukraine, which includes a war on the economic front. The president of the American Chamber of Commerce, will be live to talk about the damage being done to Ukraine's economy and what that means globally. Also an escalating humanitarian catastrophe. Doctors Without Borders on how it's getting help to those who need it most. There are fears that Russia is trying to expand the conflict beyond the borders of Ukraine. They're using tactics ranging from cutting off energy supplies to making nuclear threats. Estonia, for instance, shares a border with Russia and says it would gladly welcome the entry of Sweden and Finland into NATO, strengthening its eastern flank. On New Day, a little earlier speaking, was the Estonia prime minister who says Russia is trying to intimidate its neighbors, whatever, whatever means it can.
4: Russia wants NATO to be part of this because the big rhetoric has been that NATO is attacking Russia, it's a war between between nato and and russia, but but it actually uh, it's not. Um, so so what they are doing they are uh, threatening different countries and using the tools that they have and they of course have a lot of uh, tools in their toolbox one is the dependency on on gas and oil uh, so that uh, you know uh, they are cutting off uh, certain countries not all to give a message to everybody that we can do this to you as well. But I think it was uh, President Roosevelt who said that the only thing we should be afraid is fear itself. So we shouldn't be intimidated by their actions.
2: Do you have any fear that Russia has intentions toward you at this point?
4: Uh, No, uh, we see a lot of threats uh, that they are making towards different countries. What Russia is really good at is playing on our fears and knowing exactly what each and every country or the population of that country is afraid of. Uh, So uh, for some countries, it's nuclear, so they are bringing in this nuclear threat, uh, whereas for some others, it's, it's invasion. So they are playing those different, uh, different types of fears. But we uh, should not fall into this.
0: Estonia's prime minister. American firms inside Ukraine overwhelmingly agree that when the war is over, they want to play their part in rebuilding the country. The American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine has been finding out the situation and how it is for its 600 or so members giant companies like Citibank, Coca-Cola, and Visa. And for, of course, their people and employees on the ground. 76% say all their employees are safe. 72% say they're continuing to pay salaries full salaries. About 40 percent are fully operational and 87 percent plan to actively participate in the post-war rebuilding. Joining me now is the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine, It's Andy uh, Hundo, who, who, who managed to leave the country, Andy, because you basically saw what was about to happen. And before, as it did, uh, you, 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 you got out. Uh, yes, Richard, I'm um I woke up on the 24th of February
6: in Kiev, and uh, with the air sirens blaring and uh, the missiles hitting Kyiv. Uh, so my son and I, we got into the car. Uh, we already had jerry cans in the car. We'd been driving around three weeks prior to the war because the, the US intelligence was telling us this is what is going to happen. Um, we had paper maps. We had, uh, because we thought the, the internet, the mobile networks would go down. Uh, we had cash. Uh, local currency, hard currency, and we drove west. Uh, Luckily, you know, we have uh, AmCham's across Europe, and um, in this particular case, AmCham's Slovakia took good care of us. And, uh, you know, what we have seen uh, in the uh, first two months... Um, I think especially it's the amazing work that the the internet companies, the mobile networks have done. The internet has been up and the mobile network has been up um, uninterrupted, which is fascinating. So much effort has gone into that to keep that running. The banks, the banks are running. Uh, The banks managed to move data centers out of cities like Dnipro across eastern Ukraine. They've managed to either take them up into the clouds or to Frankfurt out of the country. So it is, um, you know, there's a lot of hard work still going on and businesses are continuing. 40% of our
0: members are continuing. On that point, because um, one minister did point out to me that Whilst the eastern part, I'm not for a second suggesting normality. Whilst the eastern part may be under fire, etc., the western part there is still productivity. There are still factories that um, are, are producing goods, and there are still services. And to that extent, some of your your members, again not normal, but are managing to do business as best they can.
6: Absolutely, uh, Richard. So uh, you know we do see uh, factories. Um, that are manufacturing uh, Nespresso coffee machines or are doing uh, electronic uh, and electric wiring for the automobile sector. They are continuing. We've seen many factories that have been destroyed. Um, In Trostanets, this is a big chocolate factory that makes Oreo cookies for all of Europe. That's been pretty much destroyed. We've seen uh, a Unilever uh, factory in Hostomil that's been destroyed. We've seen numerous McDonald's restaurants that have been uh, destroyed. Um, But there are still um, companies uh, across in Kyiv, in Western Ukraine that are continuing. Uh, Many of the service companies, their business has totally dried up. They are hardly getting any uh, customer-related business. So what we're asking for, for the global business community, is do business with Ukrainians, especially in the service sectors, like advertising, um, consulting, information technologies, legal you know, outsource your business to these people. Uh, Many of them are doing pro bono work. One law company uh, that I spoke to yesterday, they are fully doing pro bono work. And one of the projects Mm -hmm. they just completed last week was uh, the application of Ukraine to become an EU member, the application form. So a lot of pro bono work going on, but still it's really asking, you know, the global business community to do business with Ukrainians.
0: Is there there a a sort of a difficulty here between continuing to do business and supporting Ukraine, but also being very well aware, of course, of the difficulties. I, I mean, it's how you help. You don't break sanctions against Russia, obviously, in, do, in doing so. You navigate this and you keep your staff safe at the same time. It's a, it's a tricky line to, 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 to move.
6: Well, yes, I mean, you know, we've said uh, many times before it is immoral. Not only is it immoral, but now it's also illegal to do business in in Russia. Uh, President Biden on April 6th signed an executive order prohibiting all new investments in Russia by U.S. uh, citizens, no matter where they're located. So I think, you know, we are asking, you know, for these companies to continue doing business in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine, obviously, the big sector is agriculture. That currently is pretty much at a standstill. The ports, we have 104 vessels that are stuck in the Black Sea. Nothing's coming in, nothing's coming out. And that is Russia really choking. It's Mm -hmm. holding Ukraine's economy by the throat. It is strangling it. And until that Black Sea reopens, until we get some minesweepers clearing up the mines and reopening those ports... The economy is just going to uh, shrink and shrink. Uh, We're looking at about the World Bank saying a contraction of 45 percent GDP. But a lot of that depends on the ports because there is some that's coming out of the wheat, the the sunflower. Ukraine is number one in the world for sunflower production and sunflower exports. It's big on wheat. Many nations across the globe are very much reliant on Ukrainian uh, soft commodities, on wheat, on corn, on sunflower seeds. And uh, until that sort of opens up, the sea is cleared, the ports are back uh, operating, the vessels are coming in, going down uh, through the Bosphorus and across the world. That is what really needs to happen as soon as possible. Otherwise, it's going to be a disaster
0: for Ukraine's economy. We'll talk more about this. Thank you, sir. The mayor of Moropol says more than 600 people have been injured in recent bombings at the Azovstal steel complex. Officials there say Russian forces blocked off a potential escape route only hours after the Ukrainian government said it would try again to get civilians from there. Heavy shelling is continuing in the eastern regions. Russia struck an important railway hub and a supply line for Ukrainian troops. And millions of Ukrainians have been displaced since the war started. One of them has been reunited with her family in Kiev. She's a 12-year-old girl who was taken to Russian-occupied territory after bombs killed her father in Mariupol. CNN's Matt Rivers has her story. For
2: Kira Obadinsky, her new iPad is everything. She's 12, after all. But the shiny screen is also a welcome distraction from an ordeal no 12-year-old should ever have to endure. Because just a few weeks ago, the young Ukrainian wasn't safe like she is now in Kyiv, but in a hospital run by Russian-backed separatists, forcibly separated from her family. When the Russians first invaded Mariupol, Kira's dad, Yevhen, was still alive. Her mom had died just after she was born. And when Russian bombs started to fall, they sheltered in a neighbor's basement, she recalls. Mm-hmm. But they hit the house where we were staying, she says. We were buried in the cellar. Then the rescuers took us out of the wreckage. Her dad did not emerge, Kira told us. Now an orphan, she started to walk to try and find safety amidst chaos. And then another explosion from a mine. My friend saw something on the ground, she says, and she hit it accidentally with her boot. The military came after the explosions and took us to a hospital because we were bleeding. But in some ways, her journey was just beginning. In the chaos, she was picked up by soldiers she says spoke Russian and eventually brought to a Russian-held area in Donetsk. I was taken there at night, she says. They took shrapnel out of me, out of my ear. I screamed and cried a lot. It was shortly after this happened that CNN first learned about and reported Kira's story, because Russia paraded it on state TV. State propagandists showed images of Kira in a Donetsk hospital and said she was being treated well. Convinced she was being mistreated, her family went public with her story, and it worked. A deal between Russia and Ukraine allowed her grandfather to travel to Russia and bring her back to Kiev, where she told us what Russian state TV did not. It's a bad hospital there. The food there is bad. The nurses scream at you. The bed is bent like this. There wasn't enough space for all of us inside. None of that came out on Russian state TV. Her injuries have largely healed now, though she'll stay in the hospital a little longer. It was there that someone gave her that iPad. After a presidential visit came bearing gifts this week. (laughs) She didn't love all that attention, though, so for now, she says she just wants to see her cat and spend time with her grandfather recovering from the horrors of war one game at a time. Matt Rivers, CNN, Kiev, Ukraine.
0: From displacement and injury to worse, Ukraine's civilians are bearing the brunt of this war. The UN says more than 2,800 people have died in the conflict and more have been injured. The numbers, of course, will probably be much higher when we finally find out. Doctors Without Borders is leaping into the uh, fray, trying to help uh, key medical suppliers and sending a specially equipped medical uh, train across the country in a bid to reach those in need. Avril Benoit is with me, the executive director of uh, Doctors Without Borders. It is good to see you. Thank you uh, for for taking the time. So what is it that you need? We're, We're familiar with, we are very familiar, of course, with your organization. In the case of Ukraine, there is a health network there is a health infrastructure if you will and in some places it was highly sophisticated so where now do you fit in to bolster that which is there
7: You're absolutely right. Uh, Not only do they have staff who are highly skilled, Ukraine was also a place that welcomed a lot of medical students from uh, low-income countries, uh, middle-income countries. The quality of of care there is very high. And so what we have found in our discussions with doctors, nurses, uh, people who are running the hospitals, especially in the war-affected areas in the east or places that are being bombed, is that uh, they have a lot of concern about patients who require follow-up surgery, patients who require rehabilitation, that post-operative care that can take a long Mm -hmm. time, and they're worried that they're going to be overwhelmed by mass casualty influxes of patients, that they're going to not have enough time, attention, um, and also the calm necessary for people to really recover properly. So one of the areas where our help was requested is in medical referrals. So normally you would do this in an ambulance, but given the distances and the numbers, what we decided to do was outfit a, a train. Uh, it's got uh, doctors and nurses on board, a certain standard of medical equipment. And uh, if the patients are well enough to travel for up to 24 hours, so going from, say, a hospital in the east, we, we load them at the train station. Uh, We take a a good number up to 40 uh, at a time and we can transport them all the way across the country 24 hours, if not more, with a lot of stops along the way. And over that time, we can monitor their vitals, make sure they're okay, and then they get the follow up care at the receiving end at a hospital in the West.
0: So this is uh, uh, an extremely interesting initiative because... The rest of the world is helping in every way it can. I know just the number of um, the medical supplies that you've been able to be bring, to bring in. So the so you're getting the goods. What's the challenge in with this train?
7: The challenge of the train right now, the the main one is that we don't have enough trains like this. There are so many patients requiring medical referrals we wish we could do so much more. So we keep trying to, to keep it on the tracks. And of course, it's now becoming increasingly obvious that there's that there's a risk of being on the rails. Uh, for the most part, mm. the railway system is running well, uh, moving all kinds of goods and people, uh, the shipments uh, of medical supplies, for example, coming in often are coming by rail. But for us, we have to be always vigilant and mindful of the fact that some uh, tracks and stations are being attacked,
0: and your own staff, of course, and your own people. That uh, the, the safety of them is is very is key in all of this. How long do you think you can keep this operation going?
7: We will do it as long as we can, Richard. It's uh, it's imperative to to be able to bring these people to safety so that they can get the, the the excellent care that's available in those hospitals in the western parts of the country that are less affected by the war. Uh, so we will certainly do it as long as we can. Right. I mean, we're working with the railway authority to try to make it as safe as possible and make sure that the journeys are avoiding as much as possible the conflict.
0: And and finally, the I guess the awful part will be that if Russia continues, I say if there seems to be no reason to doubt that they won't continues to prosecute this war with the ferocity um, and gravity that they are, then if. Uh, you could eventually become overwhelmed. The sheer number of casualties, God forbid, will overwhelm all a potent, uh, potential medical supplies.
7: Yes, uh, it's a, a huge concern that you've got uh, not only trauma wounded, who require very specialized care, but you also have all the people with other ailments, other medical conditions, that are kind of being lost in the in the priority on trauma patients. Sometimes, you know, the people who just require uh, medication for their chronic illness. So those mm. those are also the people that we're worried are going to be left behind as we uh, as we see this this war evolve and people are increasingly finding themselves in insecure places.
0: I'm grateful you've taken time this morning to talk to us. Thank you. Welcome back. Stocks are up and running on the last trading day of April. Challenging day left, right and center. Wherever you look, the Nasdaq's off one and a quarter percent. Amazon, among the worst performing stocks, after reporting a shocking quarterly loss of almost four billion dollars. And the, I mean, Amazon is down 12 percent. Claire Sebastian is back. You told us earlier about the various reasons that Amazon had problems, but at you know, I, I always come back to this same point. At the end of the day, I will still order tonight at some point or I'll order something from Amazon and millions others will do the same. It, not, I, what justifies a reduction of 12 percent?
5: Well, Richard, it's not about the demand for, for Amazon's uh, services, its its e-commerce or AWS, which actually really propped up this earnings report. This is about the costs the company uh, is facing, inflation, fuel, shipping. We talked about this, the fact that they grew so much during the pandemic and now have spare capacity. This isn't going to end with this quarter. That is the crucial thing to realize. That, I think, is why we're seeing this drop, not just a knee-jerk reaction, but a sort of repricing. It's something we're seeing across the board, really, with tech as we see them come off those growth rates that we saw last year and perhaps the year before as well. That's what's going on here. It's the fact that this is not just this quarter. It's not just a blip that the inflationary pressures they're seeing are going to carry on for a little bit. So that's what we're seeing here.
0: And Tesla's price is up today. Elon Musk sold four billion or so of his stock. It was expected. I'm wondering that fall of 10 percent that we saw a couple of days ago, that was pricing in the fact he was going to have to sell.
5: Yeah, absolutely, Richard. And 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 Tesla. I think you have to look a bit, uh, sort of, look out a bit longer term with that stock. Yes, uh, it's been off a bit since he announced uh, his stake in Twitter. But uh, but you know, down twenty five percent year to date. Uh, up thirty two percent over the last twelve months. But since its low of March twenty twenty, Tesla is up some nine hundred and fifty percent. So that is the big picture here. I think these these recent falls are, are just a sort of reaction to to a the fact that he has to sell his his company stock to pay for Twitter. Also the the concerns that he might be just from the running of, of Tesla when he, when he buys Twitter. But I think overall, this company is still looking, looking pretty strong. It's the market leader.
0: I'm just looking, I'm just trying to see quickly the Twitter price. It is slightly up today, just a, a dollar, a, a couple of cents, a couple of cents. It's at 49.13, it's at 24, 49.24 on the screen. Um, the market, the, the, the arbitrage is still there between the, uh, the spot and the offer price.
5: Yeah, Richard, I think you can see why the board went ahead and accepted this now, because it's not making it back up to what Elon Musk offered. And, and again, they didn't get any better offers between the time right. at which they, but, they introduced but, that poison pill and the time at which they accepted the offer. But
0: so Claire, does he, does, uh, at this price, if, does, he, uh, does he pay the breakup fee for the deal, the billion breakup fee, or does he continue and get it when the market price is less?
5: You know, I, I am sort of nervous to predict what, what Elon Musk is going to do next. He is notoriously unpredictable, yeah. but he's still tweeting about Twitter. He's still looking like he's making plans for this company. So I'd say for now, the money is on him going ahead with this.
0: Thank you, Claire Sebastian. And of course, Quest Means Business bought one share of Twitter. Uh, we paid $48 for our one share and we're going to follow it closely and arbitrage the difference. If, they, if we do get the $6 difference, we'll give it to charity. Uh, thank you, Claire, Claire Sebastian. Uh, Coming up after the break, Singapore fights back for a slice of the global tourism market and China's lockdown stands Mm. in the way of it. As the Asian travel market is looking to get back on its feet, the lockdowns in China are now putting all that at some risk. China is Singapore's number one source of tourist income. It's around three billion dollars before the pandemic. Singapore reopened to vaccinated travellers at the beginning of the month after keeping the shutters down for more than two years. On QuestMeans Business, I spoke to Keith Tan, the chief executive of Singapore's tourism board.
8: At least for our projections and our thinking for this year, we are not counting on uh, recovery from China. And hence, uh, we have to maximize uh, getting tourists and visitors from other parts of the world, which is why
0: I am now here in the U.S. Right. You're trying to drum up and and, and not unreasonably so. I have to say, though, of course, you've got stiff competition from every other part of the world (laughs) that's doing uh, something similar. So what what have you got to offer um, uh, why? Wh- wh- how are you reforming, if you will, yeah. Yeah. the the product and offering from Singapore?
8: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm very confident that what we have and what we have built even over the last two years has been uh, will be very relevant. To visitors who are now looking for new experiences, experiences of renewal, experiences of, of, of coming back together to meet and uh, reunite with old friends. Over the last two years, we have seen a, a tremendous uh, experience, explosion of new experiences, new offerings, new products in Singapore because uh, the tourism attractions and hotels in Singapore have had to adapt to meet domestic demands, domestic requirements. And in that process of innovating, they've created a whole new universe of new products and experiences that I believe are very relevant for for visitors coming now into Singapore from around the region and from the US and other parts of the world. For example, a strong emphasis on uh, renewal and well-being. We've created a whole, Mm -hmm. uh, I I observe a lot more emphasis and interest in these experiences. To the extent that now we are curating a wellness festival in Singapore in June to make all these products and offerings much more knowable and discoverable.
0: Singapore's a long way in some cases, but finally, wreckage found on Mars even further. It's not an alien spaceship, rather debris from the Perseverance rover, captured on camera by NASA's Mars helicopter Ingenuity. The chopper took photos of the parachute that helped its rover Perseverance land on the red planet, as well as the shell that protected the rover's landing capsule. Perseverance journey was no small feat. Getting to Mars means surviving extreme gravitational forces and temperatures all at the speed of more than 12,000 miles per hour. That's you up to date. Connect the World is next. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World. <laughs>